Amen. If you're able, please remain standing and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll read verses 13 through 20. That will be uh, the passage for our sermon this morning. Getting at verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but I'm with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Lord, we pray that as we have sung already, that you would speak to us, that you would show us the way of holiness and righteousness. And Lord, have your way with us and do that by the power of your spirit through the reading and preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking about you know, things of importance and you appeal to the Bible, maybe you quote a Bible verse, and immediately the, conversa- the conversation takes a different topic. People don't want to talk about it. Years ago, when uh, I worked for a certain company at a place that had service technicians, every morning at 10 a.m., the quote snack truck, I know some of you like snacks, the snack truck would come to our facility and like clockwork, all those service techs would descend upon the snack truck. They would get their biscuits and all this. Then we'd go to the break room. We'd have conversation. And you can only imagine what type of conversations we had. And sometimes people, the guys, that's what really all that was in there, they would ask me a question or, Kevin, what do you think about that? And they knew that I was preparing for the gospel ministry. And I would, I would say, well, the Bible says, well, Scripture says this. And in fact, one of my friends there, he would joke, say, well, Kevin always says, Scripture says. And, but immediately when I would go there to the Bible or would quote something that Jesus said, man, three-fourths of those guys, they would, you know, you hear the chairs scoot out and they would exit and they'd go back to their benches and go back to work early if they, if they could. And that happens to many of us when we have these Experiences when we shine the light in the darkness, right? In fact, Jesus has already uh, told us about that. And John, writing this gospel, warns his readers that this would happen. And in John chapter 3 and verse 20 says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so when we shine forth the light so often, Unbelieving men and women, even children, 
They scatter because they don't want their consciences pricked by the Word of God. And perhaps to our surprise, as John includes that early on in his gospel, he was preparing his readers, not necessarily for the Gentile world, which that applies to it, but he was preparing his readers for what would happen later in John's gospel in the visible church of the Lord Jesus in Israel, among the Jews, because Jesus came unto his own and what? His own received him not. And so last time we were at verse 12 in John chapter 8, where Jesus utters one of the great I am statements, declaring his deity, that he is the one that spoke in the burning bush in Exodus three fourteen, And he says, I myself, I alone, I am the light of the world. And so there Jesus referred to his own incarnation, that as the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, he came down, took upon human flesh. He shone as light in the darkness. And also he referred to the illumination he brings through his word in the darkness, giving direction to our way back to God and therefore salvation, how men are to be saved. And so Jesus is there at the Feast of Tabernacles. The candles have been put out and he says, I am the light of the world. Look unto me and be saved is what he was saying there. <clears throat> and so he made this great declaration. He made this assertion as the light of the world. But that assertion, that declaration of truth did not go unchallenged. No, we see that here. And who challenges Jesus? Well, they keep cropping up left and right, don't they? The, the Pharisees. And so they challenge him there at verse 13. And so as we consider their challenge, we'll look this morning at its nature. Uh, we'll consider uh, its rebuttal by the Lord Jesus. And then finally, we'll consider the reason as to why they gave this challenge to our Lord. <clears throat> So first of all, under two headings this morning, we'll present the sermon. First of all, we'll see the nature of this challenge and its rebuttal by our Lord Jesus. So in verse 13, we are told the Pharisees, therefore, that is in light of what Jesus said in verse 12, that he is the light of the world. Therefore, he said to him, they said to him, you bear witness of Yourself, your witness is not true. Now, the word witness there is martyreo. It is that word from which we get the word martyr. And in our day and time, because of the Christian faith and those disciples after Jesus, even Jesus himself, the word martyr is um, used to describe someone who is persecuted and killed for his or her faith, and in particular, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But originally it meant to bear witness, to testify in the court of law. And uh, so that's what's happening when a Christian becomes a martyr. They're testifying to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But they're referring here to the Old Testament law. That's what's going on. Remember, they're Pharisees. They're the, quote, experts in the Old Testament law. They're lawyers within the courts of Israel. And so what they're saying to Jesus is... uh, You're bearing witness of yourself. You have an unsupported claim. We've already seen this before, that they would often try to find a loophole or refer to some technicality in God's law in order to trip up Jesus and to get rid of Jesus. 
And so, what's going on? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, the Old Testament law, verse 6, it says there that the death penalty, if someone committed a crime worthy of the death penalty, that could only be administered on the basis of two or three witnesses. You can't just make up something and then go charge someone with the crime and then find them guilty and then kill them. No, God's law provided for two or three witnesses. And they had to be credible witnesses. And so in our day and time, we have something similar to that. Well, also in Deuteronomy 19.15, if there was a sin that was committed, not necessarily a capital crime, but if there was a sin, it said, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so these Pharisees who are grasping at straws now look to a technicality um, in God's law in order to uh, restrain and even snuff Jesus off the scene. And so then we ought to note here that it's not only the technicality, but they're saying that his testimony is not true. There's the basis that um, he is not able to give his testimony. This is what they're saying. He's not able to give his testimony because he's only one witness. He's bearing witness of himself. But they're also saying his testimony is not true. It's false. That's what's going on. And Jesus then, he refutes this. We have his rebuttal, his apologetic, his defense of the truth. And so in verses 14 through 16, Jesus begins this. And we'll look at verses 14 through 18, really, where he totally refutes their claim. And I've broken it down into two statements, basically, how Jesus does this. This is, at least for me, um, very technical. And there are differing opinions Um, I take the older opinion as to what's going on here. But uh, at any rate, let us consider what Jesus says and and what he does, how he refutes these accusations of the Pharisees. So basically, Jesus, first of all, says that he is able to bear witness of himself, whereas his opponents are not. Jesus is basically saying that he is able, allowed, and should bear witness of himself, and that his opponents are unable to do so. They cannot. That's in verses 14 through 16. So in verse 14, he answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, which indicates that he's not, but if he were, my witness is True. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus was born of a woman, right? Mary. What we also know as we read the scriptures, as we read the gospels and the prophecies in the Old Testament about him, that he is very God of very God. We looked at that last time. One of the I am statements claim to deity. And so Jesus is both God and man. 
So we call him the God-man. John 1, the Word became flesh. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. He became flesh. He took upon human flesh, a human body. And so Jesus, he was in heaven forever. He was with the Father and the Spirit, part of that tri-unity, the Trinity. And so he came down. But he's going to go back up. And so Jesus is saying in verse 14, he goes, you do not know from where I came and where I'm going. He's saying, you don't understand. You will not believe. You have not confessed that I am the eternally begotten son of God. I am God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that um, if he were to bear witness of himself, that's perfectly fine. Why? He is God. So whatever he says is truth. It's kind of like E.F. Hutton, if you're old enough, whenever they speak, everyone listens. Everyone should listen when Christ speaks because he is God. And his word is true. He is the one who cannot tell a lie. And so his witness, therefore, is a different type of witness than required among ordinary men. His word is higher. His witness and his standard is higher than all others. Why is that? Because of what he says in verse 15. The Pharisees are merely men. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So what does that mean? The flesh. You know, we we have flesh. He's talking about their humanity, I think. He's saying, you judge, you observe cases, you make a, a verdict of those cases based on what you see according to the flesh. You know, Jesus is the one we've already seen in John 2. He knew what was in man. As God, he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. But these Pharisees, they judge as lawyers, but as human lawyers. They are mere Men, And that is to say that their judgment and their knowledge is limited. It is partial. They have to gather data in order to make a judgment. And uh, Jesus, by the way, gave the Old Testament law. And Jesus, as the God-man, um, doesn't need two or three witnesses. Why? Because he's God. And he cannot lie. He's the one who gave the law. And so really, in that sense, he's not subject to it. But he came down for the sake of his people and did subject himself to it. Philippians 2 and other passages talk about that. Well, here he says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, according to the sight, objectively, externally, what you see. I judge no one. And I think the sense there is, I judge no one in that way. Jesus does judgment. He told us to judge with a righteous judgment as he does. But we cannot. It is possible for us to judge in the way that he does. Meaning to have complete and perfect and full all knowledge. To be all knowing. Omniscient as we say. There's a second thing then that Jesus does here. Basically he tells them. Uh, that his testimony is 
supported according to Old Testament law. Um, And that's in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, he says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Deuteronomy 19, go back to Deuteronomy 17. We've already referred to these. Let every word be established. And then in verse 16, he says, Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Then in verse 17, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So in verse 16, what is he saying? In verse 16, he's saying he's not alone. He's already said this. The Father is with him. His connection with the Father, his union with the Father is so tight. It is so closely connected with the Father. As he'll say elsewhere, if someone sees Jesus, they've seen the Father. They're two distinct persons, but they're so closely together and like one another. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. So in other words, if you've heard Jesus, you've heard the Father. Jesus is speaking the words his Father has given him. He is about his Father's business. He's doing what the Father has called him to do. And so therefore, if Jesus is wrong, what is the implication? The Father is wrong. So if the Pharisees attack Jesus, whom are they attacking? The Father. And then in verses 17 and 18, Jesus is showing that uh, even according to Old Testament law, his case still stands. It still stands. Jesus himself is one witness and God the Father is another witness. Now we couldn't judge according to that with any other person according to God's law. But Jesus is the giver of the law. He's saying, look, if you want two witnesses, you've got to myself and my Father. So that's his case. That's his rebuttal, his refutation, his apologetic. And I think here we see that even though it's challenged, it is masterfully refuted. Well, there's a second thing that we find here, and that is the reason for this challenge. The reason for this challenge. Why it is ultimately that they cannot receive Jesus's testimony. And ultimately, it's because they will not. It's a matter of the will. We might think about it and say, well, they are prideful and that's true. Um, Jesus talks about their pride, the Pharisees' pride in Matthew 23 and verse 5. He says, all the things they do, the works they do, they do to be seen by men. You know, when they give alms, they blow a trumpet, they have this fanfare. They want all eyes to look on them. They want people to see that they are giving. They broaden their phylacteries, phylacteries, these things that they were to put on their, their Religious attire, but they made them larger so people would see and know that a Pharisee is coming. Bow to the Pharisee. Or maybe they wanted Jesus gone because of their jealousy of him. Once again, remember, Jesus' popularity is growing. And so they had a lot at stake, they had a lot to lose. There was power, authority, you could say fame. Money, all these things. 
They were wolves in sheep's clothing, many of them as it were, and they had a lot to lose. In fact, their, their own influence among the Sanhedrin was so great that the other members of the Sanhedrin really had to respect their opinion because the Pharisees, who only made up part of the Sanhedrin, their influence in Israel was so great that the other parties in that political body really had to consider what the Pharisees said. So they had to respect their views. So if the Pharisees were to lose their influence, they were to lose a lot. But Jesus gets to the heart of it, doesn't he? Did those words really just strike you? He says something really astounding. These are the leaders in the church of God in the day of Jesus. The visible church. These are the leaders along with the scribes and the others. What does he say? Verse 19. They say to him first. Mocking him. They change the subject, don't they? Um, Where is your father? I mean, it does speak to Jesus's argument. That's true. But now they're going to latch on to that. Where is your father? Do you think this was a cheap shot? Jesus was born of the virgin. Maybe he's an illegitimate son. Um, On the cross, this would be an external temptation for Jesus. No doubt driven by the enemy himself. If you are God's son. If, if, if. And here they're asking, where is your father? Why is it that these men and others for that matter refuse to come to the light? Why do men ultimately refuse to come to Jesus? Look at the second half of verse 19. Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And we're told these words he spoke while in the treasury of the temple. No one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. You see, Jesus again teaches that he and the father are one. Jesus has already been accused of blasphemy in John chapter 5 of saying that he's equal to the Father. I mean, back then they picked up stones. They were ready to kill him. But his hour had not yet come. Jesus is so closely connected to the Father. And he teaches that here. That they are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. If you want to come to the Father, the living and true God, if you want to come to salvation and forgiveness and redemption, you must come to Jesus first. And so if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. You can't know Jesus without the Father. They work together. In John chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus told them there, He says, but you do not have His word abiding in you because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. He says, the Father sent Him, Jesus, you don't have his word in you. Why? Because you don't believe in the one the Father has sent, Jesus himself. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, There all things have been delivered to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so Jesus reveals the Father to men. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. There's such, again, there's such a close union between the two to no one is to know the other. There is an irony here. And again, it's verse 20. Jesus is uttering these words in the treasury of the temple. Remember, we saw this last time, I think. The treasury in the temple is that place where there are these trumpet-shaped vessels into which those coming to make their sacrifices would pay for their sacrifices or give a temple tax, or give a certain contribution, a gift to God in those vessels. And so here is Jesus, the gift of God the Father, being rejected in that place where His people were to give their gifts. And also here is Jesus, the light of the world, standing before blind men who refuse to acknowledge Him as the Son of God. And so as we think about that this morning, there are three applications I would like for us to see in light of that. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps a little bit. You've already put them on, no doubt, to follow the line of argumentation. Hopefully you saw it. Hopefully I did justice to it. Well, the first thing I think we could say about this passage is that we are confronted with it. We are confronted with the limits of our own knowledge in general and evidences for the faith in particular. What Jesus teaches here confronts us with the limits of our own knowledge and the limits of apologetical that is, evidence, evidences for the Christian faith. What do I mean by saying that? Well, I think here Jesus at least confronts us with the limits of our own fleshly human knowledge. Even the greatest of men are limited as to what they know. They don't come into this world pre-programmed by the matrix or whatever. The Einsteins of this world, even the best and most intelligent of men are limited. As to their knowledge. That's because we are finite. God is infinite. He's the creator. We're the creature. In Isaiah 55 and verse 1. God says for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than yours. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. You see we may have knowledge in common with God. What we do know about his creation and ourselves and so forth. But God knows those things much more intensely, intensely and even eternally. So we don't share in that knowledge the same way. But there's also sin's corruption. In Jeremiah 17, 9, don't forget this. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, follow your heart. That's what the world says. Follow your heart. You know, live your life 
and do what you want to do and don't let anybody else tell you what to do. But what if someone else is telling you to do the right thing and your heart is telling you to do the wrong thing or you're deceiving yourselves, you're, you're trying to get into a certain situation and you do mental gymnastics to justify the way to get there. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. We need something objective and right and true. Such a mirror into which we may look and to see our faults. And that mirror, James 1 tells us, is what? The Word of God. And so our knowledge is limited. And even when it comes to defending the faith, the evidences we use are limited as well. Um, After all, there's only one final court of appeal. So in our text, Jesus here, I believe, teaches um, something we call today the self-attesting nature of the Word of God and His gospel. That it is self-attesting. Because Jesus says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. There is no higher court of appeal. There is no higher authority than the Bible. Okay, so if I look, this is what I've got on my desk, my podium right now, pulpit. If, if I were to quote a hymn of the faith to prove that this book is the word of God, then what becomes the authority? This. And that's not the way it is. God's word is the final court of appeal. One skilled Christian in apologetics wrote this. At some point, the message claiming to be from God would have to be its own authority. Only God is adequate to bear witness of himself or to authorize his own words. God's word is the ultimate authority. And as such, it can be authorized only by himself. You see, my brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we must believe the testimony of Christ We must believe the word of God, that it is true. Why? Because thus says the Lord. And Jesus teaches the Pharisees that here. And he teaches us today the same. As Hebrews 6.13 says, God can swear by nothing greater than himself. And Jesus says, if he bears witness of himself, his witness is true. There's a second application then. If in these words of Jesus we are confronted with the limits of our own knowledge, then we must also understand that the gospel itself must be divinely revealed to us. It must come down from heaven from God himself. You know, Romans 1 Psalm 19, they they tell us that we know innately that God is there. The heavens declare the glory of God and his, you know, all of these things. And Romans 1 says that through the creation, God testifies of his existence to all men. It's inescapable. But we cannot reason in and of ourselves to the truth of the gospel. That has to come down and be revealed by God through his prophets through Christ himself, through his apostles. And so we have the objective nature, the outside of us word of God. And therefore, the Christian religion 
is a revealed religion. And what does that mean for us at the end of the day? It means you have to trust God. You know, whether it's Aquinas or someone today and they have their ways to God, they have all their reasons, things maybe that can be helpful in certain circumstances, whatever. At the end of the day, you just have to bow your knee and your mind to Jesus and say, Jesus, the Lord Jesus is my Lord. Like Thomas, you say, my Lord and my God. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. But the testimony we have of that is written for us and recorded for us in Scripture. And then last, we see here that we are not to miss the purpose of Jesus' coming. Why did Jesus come, do you think? Can you get that out of this text? Look at verse 19. They say, where's your father? Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would also have known my father also. Jesus Christ has come to earth that men may know the living and true God. You say, Kevin, you just told me that... um, The scriptures tell us that we know of God's existence. We're not talking about knowledge about God. We're talking about knowing God in a relationship. Like a husband knows a wife through covenant, through a marriage. And Jesus is the one who enables that marriage, that inseparable marriage between the one who comes to God through Jesus and God himself who comes to those who come to him through Jesus. Years ago, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a modern classic. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. Read your Bible. If that's all you read, yes, read your Bible. But I want to challenge you, if that's all you read, read your Bible a little more and pick up a good book. Pick up Knowing God. It is so amazing and so encouraging So in in there, as you might guess, J.I. Packer talks about biblically, what does it mean to know God? And um, he talks about how we know God. We know God through his word, the Holy Bible, his his, uh, revelation, special revelation, we call it. Then he talks about what happens in the process when we are introduced to God, when really God is calling us to himself, that we read the Bible. And then he says what happens is, is that the creator, the Lord of Hosts, the great God before whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket. He comes and he talks to you. He begins to speak to you through his word, through biblical truth. Yes, you. And you begin to see that God is speaking to you. Again, we, we don't believe here that God speaks in all these different ways and, and all of this today. We do, though, believe that God still speaks, as Calvin said years ago, and God opens his lips in Holy Scripture. So if you want to hear a word from God, as the meme puts it, read the Bible out loud. But God does speak to us. And knowing God is through his word. And we begin to know God through the means of God drawing us to himself and 
Packer says the main meaning then of knowing God comes out in passages where God says things like this. I know you by name. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I lay down my life for my sheep. And so to know God implies then salvation now and forevermore. But these Pharisees, Jesus said, they do not know him, nor do they know the father that has sent him. And therefore they do not have salvation They do not possess the things they wanted to think they possessed. Holiness, righteousness, salvation, and the way back to God. Jesus, look at it. What he says in verse 21. I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. What dreadful words to hear from Jesus The one who speaks gospel. You will die in your sins. What is the consequence for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the consequence of rejecting Jesus? You will die in your sins. You will not go back to God. You will not go to paradise. You will not live joyfully and blissfully in heaven with people that you want to live there with forever. You go to hell. So then the question is, are we known by God? Do we know him? And do we know Jesus Christ himself? Can you say that that you are graven on the palms of his hand? That you know him intimately and in that way as Thomas himself knew him. If you're a Christian, beloved, if you're trusting in Jesus, you know God in that way. And your name is written on his hands. He has paid your sin debt in full. And therefore, you will not die in your sins. Why did Jesus come? Jesus sums it up as he's praying to the Father before his crucifixion. In John 17, in verse 3, he prays to the Father. And he says, this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you want to know Jesus, you have to know the Father. And if you want salvation, you have to know the Father. And you have to know Jesus savingly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these blessed words of our Lord that you warn us. And even the warnings that prick our conscience, they sting They invite the salve. They invite the balm of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. We pray that you would help us to know you better, to love you more, to follow Christ more, and to be the light in this world in his absence. We pray in his name. Amen. At your conscience. Well, in 1 John, the same John who gave us this gospel, in chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but for the whole world. You see, we do sin. 
But we have an advocate with the Father at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case, reminding the Father that He has paid our sin, paid for our sins in full. That's the propitiation of our sins. And so Jesus, through His work, beloved, has dismissed the charges against us. So this 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, just as He has done even so with this adulterous woman. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of the gospel of Christ, for the joy that it brings to us, for its beauty. For our Savior says, no man has had any such love as this, as he would lay down his life for his brethren. Lord, may this grip our hearts and lead us to repentance daily out of a love for you, seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.